scratch and smooth. Hello and welcome to an extended edition of SNS Online featuring the work of Brian Hazard's one-man retro synth band, Colour Theory. With close to 3 million followers on Twitter, Brian has released no less than 9 studio albums, as well as EPs, remix collections and a set of demos. Colour Theory have also been endorsed by fellow musicians through the prestigious John Lennon Songwriting Contest, which earned him first prize. His music has been described as retro-nostalgic and heartfelt, and today we connect to California to speak to the man behind Colour Theory. of color theory. So, ladies and gentlemen, trans beings and multiforms, give it up for Mr. Color Theory himself, Brian Hassett. So, Brian, Color Theory Hazard, welcome to SNS Online. It's both a privilege and a great pleasure as a, as a personal fan of your work to finally get you on the program and to showcase your music. Thank you so much. I've been looking forward to it. You have, it's got to be said, Brian, 2.63 million followers on Twitter. That is an awful lot of people. That Yeah, that really is. And that has been my primary social network for some years now. There's a lot of love in the room for Color Theory, quite clearly. <laughs> Let's get to, to talk about your music. Now, I know your voice has been compared to Martin Gore from Depeche Mode, which I totally get. I mean, clearly a big influence there. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I grew up singing along to all the Depeche Mode records. And of course, they would, um, you know, Martin would generally sing the harmonies and he'd sing the ballads. I want somebody to share, share the rest of my life, share my innermost thoughts, know my intimate details. And so I'd always sing his parts. And in fact, I confess, even on my first record, 
some of the songs there there may be a hint of a British accent. <laughs> and that's not by choice. That's just that's just what I grew up by listening to Depeche Mode, The Cure, and The Smiths. Mm. Really, uh, let's see. The first cassette I bought was Hotel California by The Eagles. Welcome to the Hotel California. That was the first money I spent on music. And then after that, it was probably Depeche Mode, Some Great Reward, that my friend turned me on to, and, and the rest is history. Take it back as we do in these interviews. How young were you when you recognized the recording artist within you? Well, I didn't start doing anything musically until middle school. I don't know if that, if you call it middle school there. So yeah. I, I was like 13, 14. Sure. And yeah, so I had a friend who was really kind of, he wasn't fantastic at the piano, but he was able to play some really showy stuff that would impress people and it impressed me. And so I got inspired to start taking lessons. And I think, you know, in high school, I played drumline, I played mallet percussion, and I played piano in the jazz band. And I, I knew I wanted to go into music. And when I was doing music, that was all through college. I, I got my degree in piano performance, which is essentially what you do if you wanted to be a concert pianist, which I knew I didn't want to be. Okay. Yeah, but I, you know, that allowed me to actually get pretty good at the piano where I wasn't going into college and get way better than I needed to be for anything I've ever recorded. But uh, anyway, that was something I wanted to kind of conquer. Yeah. And then after college is when I really began, you know, recording my music in earnest. as uh, heartfelt, vibrant, sophisticated, intimate. Uh, I've got the spacious backdrop of luscious synths and dance floor beats, intelligent lyrics, playful piano pop and catchy soaring choruses. I mean, I could go on and I probably will, but how would you, Mr. Theory, describe your sound? Oh, boy. That's tough because I like to copy and paste from, you know, reviews uh, because I feel like other people do a much better job. And my style has been evolving. You know, my last record, I don't know if that's fast forwarding too far, but it has a lot of EDM influences because that's kind of what I got into. Can't you see I've got my headphones on? 
I'm pointing at my ear. What was that? I'd rather not hear you, if I'm being honest. We're private and public as everyone stares down at their tech. Technology. It's hard not to notice the neon cord dangling from my neck. But somehow this blasted sound of blue appears to have no effect on you. Don't wanna talk right now. Can't you see I've got my headphones on? I'm pointing at my ear. What was that? No, I can't. I'd rather not hear you. I have a habit of, or I should say a rule, of only listening to music less than two years old. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so so that kind of forced me, you know, whereas my high school friends, right, still listen to the music that they liked in high school, that at least forces me to stay somewhat current. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's the perfect cure for, you know, the the disease that so many older people have, that everything on the radio is crap. (laughs) You know, music used to be great, and now it's all garbage. And I think nothing could be further from the truth. Sure. Yeah. So uh, I got into stuff like Dead Mouse, his earlier stuff. Oh, really awesome. the Yeah, that I got into instrumental electronic music. So those sounds had a big influence on me. But now, uh, some of my newer stuff that is only in in demo mode is synthwave inspired so it's really going back to the sounds of my youth and it's it's very nostalgic for me and it's much simpler there's not as many layers and so i'm still figuring out where to go with that but i will say um when I have to give my elevator pitch to people who who don't know what I do, I would describe it. I'll say, oh, it's like, you know, Depeche Mode with classical piano. Um, and that seems to capture enough of the essence of it to spark people's interest. Mm. Uh, maybe the, the vocal part doesn't come across as well because then they'll say, wait, but do you sing? You know, um, <laughs> but yeah, that's there's always the piano is a key element in there. of course my voice or it wouldn't be a song where you going something fell apart where you going won't you let me be there when it's snowing a blizzard in your heart where you going let me be there when you're snowing So let's go to your first album then, Sketches in Grey, released in uh, 1994. Now, even the title sounds exploratory, Brian. Was it more of a tentative dip into finding a sound you were happy with or, or were you quietly confident? Oh, it was It was definitely tentative. 
attentative. <laughs> yeah, it, well, I would say that the various songs kind of explore my my different influences. Uh, the first song, Never Realized, is very OMD-esque. All the places we went, all the money we spent, what were we looking for? Seems like nothing at all. All the time on my mind, just to leave you behind, what were we hoping for? It's actually kind of a combination of OMD Sugar Tax and Mark Almond had a solo album that I was really into. I, the name of it escapes me right now. But there was a song called Meet Me in My Dream. That was kind of hints of that. And then the second song was, it had guitar, like actual acoustic guitar, like almost like a Smith's kind of song and so you you could hear bits and pieces of all the things that inspired me in that album i don't think i'd really found my voice just yet first track you composed stroke produced that was particularly significant in terms of recognition but also personal satisfaction oh well let's see uh, the first track i actually recorded for the album was a, a piano ballad called severed nerves my heart suffers from the scars of Self-inflicted, I admit, deserved. So you sell your very soul to set me free. Yet you suffer all the while with me. The first song that got any real recognition was from my second album, before I actually recorded the second album, a track called Heart Like a Doll. And that was on a compilation CD put out by a different drum, which is an American synth pop label, kind of the American synth pop label. And that got a ton of recognition and um, was kind of the single, I guess, off my subsequent second album.
so Heart Like a Doll from uh, your second, uh, shall we say, difficult album in the 97 Tuesday song. How well did that flow from the success of your first album? Well, I would say songwriting and arrangement wise, I feel like it's a lot more cohesive and the writing flowed really well. Mm. Technically, I was still really learning the ropes. If I if I could go back, I would have just spent the money, recorded in real studios from the beginning and learned from those people rather than trying to figure it out for myself. And this is, you know, mostly pre-internet. So I couldn't just go to YouTube and watch, you know, somebody else show me how to do it. Sure. So I recorded the piano in a local studio, but other than that, I did everything at home and I spent over 10 grand on this um, Apple-based system with early Pro Tools, a thing called Session 8 that could play back eight tracks at once, which was, you know, monumental. And I would, I just couldn't believe it because for my first album, I recorded on a Roland sound card that could only play back four tracks. So I just spent a ton of money and I got, I switched to Mac and the Mac bombed all the time. Um, <laughs> and so it was, it was a, kind of a technology dead end. Yeah. But, but I'm really, you know, I was really happy with the result mm -hmm. and I am still really happy with the songs. Um, you know, the recording leaves a lot to be desired, but that's what happens when it's my second big project. But isn't it you know, a very exciting time for you when you're young, you've set it all up in your bedroom and uh, I mean, they must be quite sort of golden years for you, I'd have thought, regardless of, of the quality compared to later on in, in proper studios. Oh, for sure. It was a um, converted garage, a one-bedroom studio. And, you know, from from recording that album to, I mean, I was there, let's see, through at least 2001, 2002. I mean, I had Jonathan Moffat recorded um, or practiced drums in my little And, of course, he, he's uh, the guy who was on the first Madonna tour, is that right? He was on my first concert, uh, was the Like a Virgin tour. I don't yeah. know if that was first tour. Okay, but yeah, he was the drummer. Wow. And then, you know, of course, how many years later, ended up drumming on my album, and I worked on some of his material. In that is awesome. Yeah, Jonathan Moffat just the nicest guy ever, but he has terrible, terrible tinnitus. So he, and it was, it wasn't like, wow, my ears ring all the time. I better be really careful with my hearing. It was like my ears ring all the time. So screw it. Uh, I'm just going to listen to everything at 130 dB. Mm -hmm. And it, yeah, it was just, so when he wanted to really check if something sounded right, I'd have to leave the room because it was just so... <laughs> So crazy, crazy stuff. Right. So on your second album, now is this true that you wrote a song on your album to propose to your wife, or was this to help some other shy guy out with his proposal? <laughs> no, no, no. This this was my proposal to my wife, and I kept it secret. Yeah, and I performed it, performed it. Is that the right word? I mean, when your then, I guess, girlfriend, fiance is sitting next to you on the piano and you sing a song to her, uh, maybe performed isn't the right word, but I, 
yeah, I, I did that for her, and uh, and she of course consented, and we're still married. Uh, I should think so after all that. <laughs> well, yeah, it's been what eighteen years, something like that. Wow, so. and it's a beautiful piano on it as well. Let's have a listen to the perfect song. As I woke up today, I heard the perfect song I tried to write it down, but I knew all along There were no real notes or lyrics in my dream Only the echo of a universal theme What does it mean? Somehow I know the perfect song is about love What else is closer to perfection in one's life? Not like a Friday party, Sunday sing-along More like an early bedtime lonesome Tuesday song Just the other Oh, just perfect. Brian's proposal to his girlfriend, now wife, through the perfect song. You're listening to SNS Online with my special guest, Brian Hazard, a.k.a. Colour Theory. Do you have a formula as such? I know that sounds a rather crass way of sort of asking about your creative process, but are there certain sort of key elements that uh, arise each time? Oh, for sure. Uh, yeah, not, not uh, crass at all. So I learned an important lesson with that second album we were just talking about. When I sit down and write the songs at the piano and then try to translate them into, you know, an electronic arrangement, they end up sounding like ballads. And in fact, several reviewers uh, said that it's an album of ballads. And I didn't get that because there's some real upbeat tracks. So. I don't know, something about the character of those songs written at the piano carries over, it seems, no matter what the arrangement. And so my process for the last several years has been to start with a production kind of hook. Uh, so maybe it's, you know, there's going to be at least drums and bass and something going on with, you know, an accompanimental instrument or lead instrument. But something there has to uh, justify a listener wanting to hear more. I could write you a poem, but keep it locked away. I could practice for hours, words I'll never say. If your eyes send a message like a telegram, I would still dump my senses. That's just who 
once I have that, I can build a song around it. Um, so that's that's always the start. So once I have maybe that that kind of instrumental idea down, the next step is to consult Evernote, where I have a list of um, of song ideas, and many of them are just titles. So if I can get an instrumental hook that is catchy to the ear, and a title that's catchy, then I'm off to a great start. And so I'll I'll build around that. I mean, I just was thinking about, you know, so many of your songs are very emotive, emotional, or quite romantic, really. I mean, I would say they're more rom-com than, than rock and roll, if, if you wanted like a glib sort of a catchphrase. Yeah. And that's not, you know, that's not a deliberate choice. That's just... Um, I guess what's always intrigued me and I've, I've always liked those kind of tracks. And if there's no real emotional connection, it, it, there's no point I, in my opinion. I brush my teeth and put the book I'm reading back on the shelf. Then dial six numbers on the phone before I catch myself. Your next album, the uh, 1999's Perfect Tears, was promoted through a series of personal ads as the album was deemed to be particularly intimate. Now, I think this is an amazing idea for a promotion. Was this your idea? Because if so, you should get into advertising. <laughs> well, you know, it was my idea. Um, the advertising job, I think, is going to have to wait because the <laughs> results were not particularly impressive uh, for that campaign. But, yeah, I literally took out personal ads that basically... I wish I remembered the the text, but said I was described the kind of emotionally available listener that I would be looking for. But it didn't say, you know, to listen to music. It it described the person and had the the website. And, you know, I didn't have Google Analytics back then mm -hmm. to say, you know, how many people caught on from that. Over time, home by nine. Watch TV to loosen up my mind Pay the bills, earn a wage Just enough to keep it all the same Somehow life slips away Good or bad, it's just another day On my own, in this world, safe and sound But I don't wanna
the main way that that album was promoted, I actually dumped, I mentioned the last album was a money pit. Well, this was a promotional money pit. I dumped four grand, which, you know, was a lot for me uh, at the time, especially on a radio campaign. And the idea was, you know, in the U.S., they're into, let's see, when was this? 1999. So grunge, I guess, was pretty much done with, but electronic music really was not on the radio. And so the thought was that UK audiences or at least European audiences would be more in tune to what I was doing. And so I did a a radio promo. It was mostly Italy and France and got on um, 40, at least according to the promoter, 40 commercial stations in the regular rotation and saw absolutely nothing from it. Never a single email, never, I didn't get a penny in royalties. Uh. And I spent hours on the phone with ASCAP and was it SACM? I'm trying to think of the performing rights society that I had to talk to. But the, I, the promoter told me, you know, I could expect back $1,500 at least in royalties out of that, you know, promotional expense. And so, yeah, anyway, just lots of lessons being learned, um, you know, over these early years. But that album, I was just so, so pleased with. I just felt like it, it really, I'd really found my sound. I never felt the way that you feel. I never I'm super happy with the songwriting and I pressed like way too many CDs because I thought, oh, this is it, you know, and it, uh, (laughs) it did well, uh, but it wasn't certainly didn't just, let's put it this way. They're still in the garage. Uh, there's still a significant quadrant of the garage occupied by CDs that, uh, aren't promising to go anywhere anytime soon. So just to be clear, Brian, was this like a large-scale one-man band cottage industry venture? I mean, not orchestrated by a, um, a record label at all? No, that's correct. I have never been with a record label. You know, it just doesn't make a lot of sense these days, especially because a record label can't, you know, do your social media. People want to connect directly with with the artist. Um, in those days, you know, they could they could put some money behind it, and it did cost a lot more to make CDs, but. Obviously, in the 90s, it was CDs. It was sending out bulky stuff. And uh, I, I would have thought that to have a, a record company behind you, particularly in those in, in that period, uh, would have been a big advantage. I mean, and I would have thought you would have been snapped up. Well, well, that's that's very kind of you. I mean, intuitively, yeah, it makes sense because the expenses were bigger. But then again, you know, I made a lot more on sales because the, the margin was bigger with CDs. Uh. And, you know, you could still get, you could still get distribution, Mm. um, which, which I had, there was a, um, one prominent synth pop label, a different drum out of Utah that, um, that was just really big in the scene. And I did a lot of mastering work for them. And so it was just a great little community, but, uh, but it was really, it was pretty manageable on your own. I just didn't see the advantage of, uh, of hooking up with a label. And I, I master mm. so many clients that are with labels. Yes. And very few are happy. I mean, they just, they always feel like the label's not doing anything for me. Uh-huh. I do everything myself. 
we interviewed uh, somebody who was uh, signed up to Sony for, um, I think he had it was something like a 10-year contract. So he was tied mm. up for all that time. And, of course, when the band, this boy band in the 80s, uh, finished, um, anything he wrote was sort of owned by them. So he ended up having to go to ground for a, a few years before that all cleared. Oh, what a hassle. Yeah. Awful. So I, I completely understand that. I've just never heard of um, such a big artist because, you know, clearly in terms of all the music you've done and all the connections with music and uh, the amount of people on Twitter, I, I just assumed an artist like that would be linked to a record label. So this is, this is very interesting. I'm learning a lot about uh, the way it's all done. A lot of the artists that you do see, maybe they had a label at one time and that's how they got their initial exposure. Sure. And, you know, the best of both worlds is, the label drops you for whatever reason, and somehow you still own your masters because you you were smart when you negotiated the contracts, and now you're on your own and you have that fan base from when you were with a, a label, um, but you have the freedom of an independent. Your joys clenched, preparing for the worst. The pessimist is always on alert. Had a share of tragedy, but standing guard takes too much energy. Forget about abandonment, forget your childhood. Count on me, cause I am.
I was going to ask you, was this still a more sort of innocent stroke kind of time for artists in terms of making money through album, single sales and also radio play? You just said that you didn't have the best success with these 40 stations that were, you know, playing out your music. But was it easier than now? Was it more linear, if you like? Well, now... Now there are so many better ways to get your music out there. Um, I think it's a lot easier now. See, the, the thing that I've learned over the years is when you try to approach the gatekeepers, whether it's a label or, you know, Rolling Stone or music bloggers or DJs to get on air, I, that's just backwards. That has never worked for me in any capacity. What does work though is going directly to potential fans. So for example, uh, instead of doing a radio campaign, which I've done a few and have never gotten really any results out of, I can use a service like feature FM or radio airplay. And for much less money, I can have my songs kind of interjected into their playlists of, you know, and, and people hear them directly. And ultimately that's what it comes down to. I mean, you can do, you know, you could get a, a four page spread in, in a magazine, but how many people then are going to look you up and listen to the music? And that's what it's all about. Um, so yeah, just going direct to fan has, has made a huge impact and it took many years to learn that. It's easier than ever with the internet now. Maybe I'm glad to be back on my own. After fun out of happiness taken on long. Filled with photos and cars, shameless cliches, love songs and daisies and Do you feel that the now it is better to also make a living out of music? Because it seems to me that the main way to make money is not by album sales or downloads, etc. It's is by going out there and, and gigging. I mean, do you do you gig with, with this form of electronic music? So no, I don't perform at all. 1999, uh, I think, was when I stopped. you have borders books and music out there yeah but okay yeah so pretty big chain they have their own circuit and so i performed at the local borders there was maybe four different um stores and what was really nice about borders is that number one they carried your cd they would put them on display um, so people would you know hopefully pick some up and number two they actually paid you and um, and what was even better, at least in one this Brea store that's local, they actually had a piano set up with a mic, 
So I could just show up. It was, it was great. Um, but you know, ultimately I did live performance because I was told this is the way to make money. This is the way to build a fan base. And so I felt like if I didn't do it, I was really selling myself short, but I didn't really enjoy it. And, uh, I didn't really find that it was more successful than my online efforts. And so I just kind of dropped that, especially when I had, uh, my first child, uh, there was no way to really schedule around that. And so, uh, but from what I understand, you know, it's really hard to set up a tour these days. Most people lose money, you know, even big acts. And so I think the way that people make money these days for the bigger stars, it's more of the developing their personal brand uh, and sponsorships. Mm. And for smaller artists like myself, you know, I recently launched a Patreon. It's been two months. I was just about to ask you about that. And also your watches as well. <laughs> yeah, well, that that is a... Merchandise, merchandise. Yeah, modify or modify... I don't know how to pronounce it. Modify watches, I guess, because you can customize them. Approached me about that. And so, yeah, that is not a huge moneymaker either, nor is selling merch. Uh, the thing is, most of my fans are my age. And like me, they don't they don't buy band T-shirts that, you know, they've got jobs They're They're busy doing their own thing. And so they just care about the music. And so, yeah, that's really tough in an age where people don't buy music anymore. But with Patreon, they can choose to support me directly, and then they have early access to the music. In many cases, I haven't figured this out yet, but in many cases, they're going to be the only ones that hear the music because it may never be released. And then a lot of other kind of perks that I'm able to put together and just kind of form a community behind what I'm doing. So it's, it's pretty exciting, and many people are you know, making a good living that way. I'm, I'm getting just shy of $400 a month right now. So it's not, you know, it's a don't quit your day job kind of thing, but hopefully I can build it from there. Oh, my little secret love I never met before. You can change my
just wonderful. One of my all-time favourite colour theory tracks, Obsession, which was a collaboration with Russian artist Ruslan Tagarov. You're listening to Colour Theory on SNS Online. And if you'd like to comment on this or any other show, then please like our Facebook page, SNS Online. Twitter, also SNS Online. And we have an email address, snsonlineshow at gmail.com. All shows are free and downloadable by searching on SoundCloud for, wait for it, wait for it, SNS Online. I do hope you're taking all this down. So, Brian, we're talking about Patreon um, earlier. What about kickstart campaigns aiding musical projects? We've we've had people on the show before who have used that route to finance their projects. Well, if I wanted to do a Kickstarter, let's say, I would need to know, okay, here's the project I want to do. Uh, here's when I'm going to finish it. Here are all the rewards, you know, and then you put all this work in and you do that project and then you start over and do it again with patreon you know i can i can get a group of behind me that are energetic about what i'm doing and kind of play it by ear as i go and you know if people really respond to one type of track i can i can do more of that or uh you know it doesn't need to be here's an album and i'm working towards my next album because that's not how people consume music anymore anyway. Mm. So a lot more flexibility. Uh, and it's a, it seems like pretty reliable source of income. Um, we'll have to see over time if people stay with it, but I'm, I'm hoping that they will. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it shouldn't be anything that they really feel out of their budget a, a few dollars out of, uh, you know, a month. So. Absolutely, and and to support such a, such a great artist like you, I mean, you know, why wouldn't people want to do that? Particularly if they are fans of your work, anyway. Fairy Tale in 2001, your next um, album, and, and that's got some great tracks as well. The one I was particularly interested in, though, was uh, was a very um, change of uh, of a tempo for you uh, in something beautiful. 2002, a full orchestra, um, and I used this uh, phrase before, rom com. It felt very rom commy. I could ma- imagine sort of a Sex in the City, Jennifer Aniston style film track those sort of movies also a real sort of musical theater vibe as well (laughs) 
Uh, I mean, did you ever think about writing a piece of musical theatre? I, I haven't thought about that, but I mean, yes, the the comparisons. I mean, I, I even said it in the press release. It was a cross between, you know, I mentioned a Broadway musical and... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, I could be, could be wrong on the chronology here, but Alanis Morissette with Jagged Little Pill. Hi, recommend getting your heart trampled on. That was huge, and that was just this ultra-confessional, like watching The Office, you want to cringe because it's just so direct. And I think even though I, I would never take it to that degree, I think that that, that kind of style uh, had some influence on, on my writing. And, you know, with it, it just made sense that if it's going to be that kind of String. It was a string quartet and vibraphone and fretless bass. I, I loved fretless bass going back to Japan, one of my all-time favorite bands. Um, you know, just having that kind of intimate sound, it, it made sense to write intimate songs. You're an assuming figure hides Something beautiful behind the T-shirt and the Makes sense that it would sound like a rom-com, but 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 how wonderful to get that together and obviously finance it as well. And um, uh, you must have been very proud of the results. I mean, I just I can't decide which is my favourite track. Uh, there's something beautiful, numb, Eiffel Tower, particular favourites of mine. I want to play a little bit of numb now because it's just it's sure. just so nice.
That was the wonderful Numb there from Something Beautiful, uh, Brian's album from 2002. Um, obviously, you're a musician, but you've got to pay the bills and all the rest of it, and you're a very talented guy. You can put your hand to lots of different stuff. Apparently, you've worked on video games as well and and uh, been involved in music for other people. Tell us about you know your sort of day-to-day stuff outside color theory. Well, my day job is as a mastering engineer and for some of your audience who might not know what that is basically you know when you go to a mix engineer they take a bunch of tracks and combine them to form a song and then i take those songs and combine them to form an album so that means making sure that each of them sound the best that they can um kind of sweetened radio ready mm. But not only that each track sounds good, but that they all sound good together and in sequence. And so that, that's been kind of my, I was going to say nine to five, but I, if I worked nine to five uh, doing mastering, I wouldn't have any hearing anymore. Um, you know, it's just I work in spurts and take breaks and rest my ears because you're listening so critically. But that's been my main job. So give us some names of people you've uh, worked with over the years. Well, yeah, I'd mentioned. Oh, I shouldn't. If, say if that you're allowed to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I've done a lot of mastering for different um, electronic bands, of course, because that's kind of my specialty, and I, I was known as the kind of synth pop mastering guy. Mm. And through that, I got to work with a lot of bands that that I kind of grew up appreciating. Um, Information Society. I've mastered a few of their albums. I Um, I've worked several times with Pete Byrne of Naked Eyes. So he lives not too far away. So he he's actually come over a number of times. Um, so I helped him mixing a solo album and mastering. And um, and he just calls me on the phone every now and, and again. Oh, so. that's cool. Yeah, yeah, no. So it's it's just it's really neat. Um, and then you know a lot of other bands that you may not have heard of, like Rupesh Cartel and B Machine, come to mind as as bands that I've worked with so long. But they are actually like my favorite bands. Um, you know, so it, so it kind of crossed the line from just listening technically um, to to really growing to appreciate their music. And and it's it's kind of a deeper appreciation than. You could have for almost anything else because you you you're there for the whole process. Absolutely, so, yep. yeah. Tell us about the video games you worked on. Well, I did some soundtracks for Microsoft, uh, Fable Two, and Banjo Kazooie, and Viva Pinata. Just basically mastering these things. Some were for soundtrack release, and some were the actual audio before it went in the game. So that was a ton of fun. There was a project called Lips that was basically a singing game that was went on for two years. And uh, most recently, I did three tracks for Just Dance Kids 2014. That doesn't sound very recent anymore. <laughs>
it was really fun because I got to do an Owl City song, Fireflies, and my job was to make it sound as close to the original recording as possible. And I think I did a good job of it. You know, a lot of people thought that it was the original um, because I guess they don't want to pay to license the original. So <laughs> they, they oh, did Oh, that's for track that got me into you. Uh, oh, remind me again. Fireflies by no, Owl City. No, oh, I'm thinking of another one. Oh, what productivity is. is yes. Long. Oh, my well, God. That's brilliant. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. That, so. I hadn't actually heard the original version of that. I didn't realize it was sort of a, a, an ad- adaptation of, of uh, another piece of work. But uh, that was the one I when I first heard it, I thought, this guy's brilliant. I want to speak to him. Oh, that's great. Yeah. No, I just I it took so long to to kind of nail down the sounds that, you know, Adam Young used in in the original and so and there were just so many tracks and and once i'd done the the fireflies it was only two minutes for the game uh i felt like i put in all this work why not just delete you know all the actual content off of the tracks but use this same kind of arrangement template and write my own song using those same sounds Um, and that's where productivity came from And, you know, I think that's, it's interesting. Copyright is an interesting thing because, you know, that's of course totally legit. I mean, there's not a single note or chord or, you know, lyric that, that is from his song. It's just purely taking the sounds themselves as an inspiration. And as far as I know, that hasn't been done before. So that was, that was a lot of fun. There was a time in history, your next meal was a mystery. It's 
to Depeche Mode over the years. Now, you actually embraced this with a Colour Theory Presents Depeche Mode in 2003. And one of the original tracks that you put in, as well as uh, the, the the covers, was actually sort of mixed up um, and mistakenly credited as a Depeche Mode track from their Exciter album. Right, right, right. So this is kind of the, uh, the, the prom- non-promotional effort <laughs> that <laughs> that gave me the most infamy because you know it's uh, I couldn't have hired somebody to do this you know it was, it was just <laughs> crazy but yeah so back back then um, ponytail girl was the first song that I recorded uh, actually for life's fairy tale at 4 p.m. her second shower of the day she shuts her eyes and I was really excited about it, but the album was nowhere near, you know, completion, of course. And so I had a little Christmas sampler that I I sent out to less than ten fans that I forget what the deal was. They had, you know, bought particular combination of CDs or something. Uh, And then when Napster was kind of in its heyday and bootlegs, everybody was, couldn't wait for Depeche Mode's Exciter album. And so there were a ton of tracks that were mislabeled as Depeche Mode. There was a, a Joy Machine track. I remember, you know, there, there were several that actually, to a non-Depeche Mode fan would be convincing. Um, Mm. So out of all of those, uh, for some reason, my track Ponytail Girl and that Joy Machine track kind of hung around. And I even, you know, I don't know if you remember Napster, but you you could message people individually. And I remember you could see like kind of the seeds, like where it was coming from. And I tried to message people and I said, hey, by the way, you know, I appreciate you're sharing the song, but it's not Depeche Mode. It's actually me. And one of the guys said, no, I know for a fact that's Martin Gore singing. (laughs) So, and then there were all these compilation CDs that have the track on it, kind of bootlegs. And so, I mean, that was, that was interesting. It's it's quite a compliment really, but you know, because you're such a fan and you've embraced their style to a certain extent that they, people actually think it's you. Did you ever get any feedback from the lads themselves from Depeche Mode about the track? Have you ever met them or seen them in concert? I've never met them. I have never gotten any feedback. The closest thing is that uh, I've had correspondence with Alan Wilder several times on, on Facebook and Mm. he commented on some blog posts that I did and he's just a really cool, friendly, all around, you know, nice guy. 
and uh, not not really uh, directly from the band. There was another project too where my friend Craig just wrote about this on on Facebook, where basically he engineered a plan to get Depeche Mode to perform, but not tonight. which was a huge hit over here, but the band generally kind of dismissed as a B-side. It was on, um, I think, was it Black Celebration? It was on kind of the U.S. version. Uh, anyway, so he, he had me kind of engineer my own piano vocal version using the vocals of Martin's demo that he'd found in the studio when he was putting together these reissues. Fabulous. Yeah, yeah. and so I put that together and... He played it for Martin, and they actually ended up performing, but not tonight at the Troubadour. And um, yeah, super cool. Uh, but I never. But I, I would mean, I would say that's that's a, a handshake between the two of you. No words are needed. It's music. <laughs> they obviously well, respect what you do, and you respect what they do, and they, you know, that uh, that influenced their decision. Oh, for sure, for sure. I just I don't know if they even know who did the piano arrangement. Um, mm. So there, there have been several brushes with where one would figure that there would probably be some kind of communication. But, you know, I've seen from their interviews, they, they just don't, it's probably smart. They don't keep up with that stuff and they can't, they can't, you know, I don't think they understand kind of the, the frenzy that the fans get into over, you know, every little thing. And that's probably smart for them. So they, they kind of distance themselves. And I haven't felt so alive in years. You're listening to Brian Hazard's one-man band, Color Theory, on SNS Online. And if you'd like to hear more or contact Brian himself, then check out his website, colortheory.com. Well, let's take another break and go to another one of my many favourites. I'm going to go for Slot Machine. <laughs> Maybe not for a while. Maybe not for a while. 
So we now get to uh, 2008, which is uh, quite a, a long, uh, well, actually, it's a five-year gap from your uh, album before, The Thought Chapter. Um, uh, was it particularly difficult or certainly it was a long album to work on? It was. Uh, there is a very good reason for that. Uh, we had our first child. <gasps> oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, both of our kids stayed home with me the first couple years, um, and so... That took a good part of my day. And then when, you know, when, when he napped, if I could work on mastering on headphones, I mean, that, that was wonderful. And so that's why that album took so long. I really wish that I could have had some more momentum, but I couldn't be more pleased with the album itself. I mean, that's especially after, you know, the Depeche Mode tribute really, it was very popular, at least by my standards. And so it got me a lot of attention, but a lot of it, you know, it, it just felt a little um, too derivative, you know? I, though, I understand. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not completely your own voice. Is that, is that what you mean by that? Yeah, exactly. Like I was, well, I would say that, you know, it's kind of a, a small pond, this modern synth pop scene, as as we called it back then. And I think a lot of bands were kind of jealous of my success and as if I were, you know, using Depeche We don't even think of this now. Of course, tons of artists put cover songs on YouTube and that's how they get discovered. But back then, the idea of, you know, basically promoting myself through another band mm. was kind of seen as maybe cheating. Um, I understand. So, yeah, so to come back with the Thought Chapter, which... I think has some of my best uh, writing and arranging. And now now I'm finally getting 
you know, the, the actual audio quality and the arrangements and the mixing are, in my opinion, at least up to professional levels. Um, so that, that was really exciting for me to be able to come out with a full album of originals. I think I have, uh, let's see, that is the one with my Death Cab for Cutie cover, but one cover track. Um, but yeah, that was, that was wonderful to come back with that. I say I should take you home, but you want to stay here on the beach all alone with our blankets and beer in the dark. How we ache to feel, feel this hunger, cherish it now, cause we're not getting any younger. Ashes and fire, pits and fires in our hearts as we move, crashing away. Brian, tell us about the Lennon Award that you won in 2008, or, or possibly two. I'm, I'm not quite clear. This was for um, the Thought Chapter. That's correct. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was a song that I submitted called "If It's My Time to Go." If it's my time to go. And, um, you know, I don't I don't normally send a songwriting contest, but um, this was kind of has always been kind of the biggest to me. Like I see vans in the in the area. There's a John Lennon songwriting contest van uh, <laughs> that was at the local Sam Ash and stuff. So it's always been in my head as a big one. So I submitted, forgot all about it. And then one day I got a phone call and I, you know, my first thought is, oh, come on, this isn't real. But it was just, you know, some really nice lady uh, that told me that I won the grand prize. Oh, that the, is uh, awesome. The grand yeah. prize. Right, right, right. So so that was in, in the electronic category. Um, and then what happens is is they take previous winners uh, of the same prize and they kind of pitch you against each other. And so I won that next award too, which is called a Lennon Award, which was, was really cool. It was like $8,500 worth of prizes and gear. And I got uh, the next CD that I did was, was uh, pressed for free as part of that. So it was just just kind of a really cool experience. That's that's awesome. But but also my understanding is is that um, this was uh, judged by by your contemporaries, your musical contemporaries. Right. Yeah. There's a, there's a huge list of um, you know yeah exactly. That's how they get people to submit right because mm. their musical heroes can be uh, could be some of the judges. Awesome. And, um, and yeah, I don't remember the the names of all this. I, I've been in them in the past. I mean, I remember Pat Denizio from the Smithereens one time mm-hmm. called me. Uh, because of some contest and I got an award from Jim Beam, the, the bourbon company. I got a, <laughs> a, a grant and yeah, it was wow. really cool just talking to Pat Denizio. I assume that's how you say his name because mm. you know, I, I love the smithereens and, um, yeah, anyways, just while I performed one of their songs on a high school talent show. So fantastic. Well, listen, congratulations on those two awards. That is, that is awesome and has to be flagged up here. Scratch and Sniff Online With Nick Randall Now we get to the sound in 2010 
quite something that was quite dancey, trancey. There's a track called Two, which I absolutely adore, and we must play some of this. Um, uh, any particular notes on that time? Well, that, okay, with Two, you can hear the influence of uh, my Dead Mouse and other EDM listening. song just kind of flowed i mean it was what is it seven eight minutes the the original version just just having these sounds kind of come in and modulate and twist and turn and change and and dip under you know over the course of a minute or two that that was new to me um and so i just had had a lot of fun making that and it actually came about as a collaboration with a Swedish producer that he had sent me something and then I had to come up with, uh, with yeah, that's right, with the, the actual something to sing over it and I came up with two. And when I sent it back to him, he just over time decided, you know what, it's, it doesn't really work with what I wrote. And it didn't. He, he wrote this very mid-range heavy kind of lead synth sound in a loop that there really wasn't any room for a vocal. And so I just said, Hey, is it okay if I take the song and just do my own thing with it? 
And so that's how that came about. So I'm sure he had some, you know, subconscious influence on the direction of the track. you'd like to collaborate with in future interesting question so this i mentioned the kind of synth wave direction that i was going in so i had this idea that um you know it, it's so weird to me that synth wave really isn't that different than the synth pop that i've been doing for you know 20 something years now but it has uh, a different audience and the artists are not the same artists that, you know, in my music community that I've been making music with for all this time. And so my idea was to reach out to some of these synthwave artists and put together a bunch of demos and then have them take the vocals and create their own track underneath. So it would basically be like remixing my demo but it would be a series of collaborations. And so I have a couple friends that are pretty steeped in that scene and know a lot of the, the bands and artists. And so we approached a couple of my favorites and they weren't super excited about it. Of course, they never heard of me. Um, like uh, FM84, I love his stuff. It's fantastic. I used to be the one. I used to be a getaway. And it just captures, um, you know, it's just that nostalgia for me. I don't know. A lot of these guys are younger, so so it must mean something completely different for them. But Mitch Murder is another one. Highway Superstar. Um, there's a soundtrack to a movie called Drive uh, that has a lot of these. Oh, Electric Youth is who I was trying to think of. I would love to collaborate with some of these guys. And... Um, you know, it doesn't need to just be for my project. Whatever I can do for them too would be, would be fantastic. But that was my idea. What's what's kind of weird is that after time, hearing your demo for a few months, it doesn't sound like a demo anymore. It sounds like that's the track. And um, so I'm wondering if the tracks that I have, maybe with you know a few drum fills, transitions, a couple other layers of um, you know melodic content, if that would be the difference between the demo and a finished product. So I'm not sure if I'm going to collaborate or if I'm just going to, uh, going to go ahead and do it myself. It was a lie. All the legacy you built was just a lie. Interestingly, just this week, I put out a collaboration with a UK singer named Bentley Jones, who is um, fantastically prolific. He used to be on a major label and put out a record in Japanese, actually. He was big in Japan, as they say. Uh, and so I sang on one of his songs and he sang on one of mine. It's called The Timekeeper. And I just um, released it to my Patreon fans. So that's that's kind of a new thing for me. I haven't done a lot of collaborations, but 
I'm looking forward to doing more in the future. like working alone and, and do you tend to work alone mostly and can that be a little bit of a double-edged sword when it comes to deciding what's good because obviously you're listening to a track over and over again and does it almost get to the point where you're sort of musically blind to a certain extent oh ab- absolutely and and there's a um, a tool that i use i i also blog on music promotion and there are several market research sites that allow you to get feedback from you know, unbiased listeners. And one of them was called AudioKite and then Reverb Nation bought AudioKite. And I'm still working with uh, with them to, um, I gave them some feedback on their latest version and I'm going to write another review of the service. But one of those Synthwave tracks that I was talking about, the demos, I didn't label it as a demo, but it's in there right now. And uh, it's in the process of getting a 200 listener report. So I'm going to get some feedback from 200 people who, um, you know, who don't know who I am and who are going to give me an honest opinion on the track. And and that's going to help immensely because if they say stuff like, wow, this is really, you know, stark, it needs more in the arrangement, then that's going to tell me a whole lot. But um, that's brilliant. What a a great idea. Fantastic. Oh, yeah. I mean you can do anything on the internet these days, right? With So, I mean, they get paid through, uh, I think it's Amazon Mate- Mechanical Turk, um, and they get, you know, I don't know how much per per listen, but yeah, it's brilliant the way they set it up. There are little incentives and rewards for good reviews where they write thoughtful comments or listening longer than the required time. And But on my own, the, the reason I like working alone is because I work, I kind of collaborate with others in my work for hire. Like I'm working with a band called Declaration now. Uh, I mixed their entire last album and we're mixing new material now. Uh, I'm working with a band called Eloquent where I am doing their vocal editing and I sing backup. And like, so I need to actually kind of write the backup parts and record them and do all the vocal editing and then I'll do the mastering. I'm working with a songwriter, Kevin Alvarado, who he doesn't really have the musical vocabulary. So he just has these ideas. He'll sing stuff to me or come over and I'll poke around at the piano until he goes, yeah, 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 that's it. That's it. And, <laughs> well, uh, that would be me. <laughs> yeah. So I take that to a finished production. So in other words, I get plenty of collaboration. So we jumped to 2016 now with the uh, the album Adjustments, which I think was a series of EPs. Um, again, quite a long gap. Presumably another child <laughs> on the way. <laughs> well, okay, so it was a big gap. I had mentioned that Lips project by, uh, that I worked with Microsoft. So that was a two-year project. Um, and then also that Just Dance Kids project was kind of a monumental uh, 100 hours kind of thing. Thing. So, but ironically, I released uh, the tracks 
as a series of EPs, thinking that if I did EPs, it wouldn't take so long. So I had five tracks and then a remix of each of those tracks for 10 tracks total per EP. I really enjoyed doing it that way because it was a way to stay in front of your fans and not just disappear for five years. Um, Absolutely. But the downside, of course, was that once I had three EPs, the real fans had all the tracks on the album. And it's really a testament to to just how amazing they are that they went ahead and bought the album anyway, where really they had the tracks. I mean, the album was remastered, but sound quality is not um, something that the vast majority really concern themselves with. How did you feel adjustments had uh, evolved from your early stuff? I think the main difference was the inclusion of the kind of EDM elements, definitely in the drums. All those drum sounds were specifically, you know, EDM designed samples. And so that was kind of what drove a lot of the um, kind of that first production hook. Of course, once you take one of my songs and then try to mix it with an EDM production hook, it's it's not going to end up sounding like EDM. That's just the way, you know, that's yeah. <laughs> my piano background and, and a kind of a singer-songwriter background. That's just the way it's going to work out. Well, I want to hear Work in Progress, which is one of the tracks. I think it's fantastic. It's everything you could expect from a color theory track and beyond. This is my unfinished symphony. It's a little pretentious, but humor me. Try not to laugh. I'll fix it in a second, in the second draft. Like a promise from a lifelong friend, the process has a beginning, but no clear end. This isn't math. It's hard enough to collect my thoughts with all the rules of behavior. The shits and odds that guide our ways Confused like hamster circling In a dead end maze Wrapped up in cosmic uncertainty Our actions trailing off into infinity Like summer rays Don't ask me why I did 
Probably, you know, one of the final questions I've got for you tonight, uh, Brian. Do you have a favourite album or track in particular that truly represents you and your sound at its at its most heartfelt and most professional? Yeah, well, my my favourite track is not a fan favourite. Um, I don't know what that means, but it is too close off of the sound. It's electronic, but it's got just the emotion of it. I, you know, it could be one of those things where the words just, they mean something to me that maybe it doesn't mean that to the people that listen or it comes across differently. But to me, I just, I feel like the lyric just captures something that I've been wanting to capture for years. We don't for the future then while we're wrapping up here I mean where do you see all this going I mean I can see I can foresee so much potential in terms of 
as I said before, musical theatre, film, another album. What, what, are, what are your hopes for the future? Well, I'm really excited about the, the Patreon. I think that having, you know, it's, it's 130 people right now, which is a, a small group, but just being able to get feedback from those 130 people that really know my stuff and care enough to kind of support what I'm doing, I think that that's going to lead to kind of some exciting developments. Like you've heard of agile marketing where businesses can turn on a dime because they get immediate feedback as to what works and what doesn't. So I'm kind of doing the same thing with a Patreon because immediately I can know if people are connecting with something, I can get demos to them. Or like I mentioned, the, um, the audio kite, or now it's called Reverb Nation Crowd Review, where I can get a demo in front of people and get feedback right away. I just... I want to kind of follow where that leads, wherever it leads, and not not think I need to have this overarching vision for the future. So I've got a collaboration with Matt Manson, who is a trance producer. We've been doing covers of songs from kind of a, the early 80s, our youth. Like I need to do vocals for Peter Gabriel, Mercy Street, and kind of re- imagine the chords to that. And it may end up being a club banger when he gets done with it. So, you know, there's just a lot of exciting things, but without the the burden of needing to know what this next album is going to be and then try to fit everything together, but instead just kind of going with what, what inspires me at the moment. And then afterwards, if I want to put some tracks together as a release, I can. I mean, that's just, that's a level of freedom that I haven't had before. It sounds a very cathartic way to produce music. And and uh, the record producers of old have, have essentially become your actual audience. <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> Which is wonderful. Um, Brian Hazard, thank you so much for joining Scratch and Sniff tonight. And uh, very best of luck with the future. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it.
We're not quite done yet. Take a listen to this. Scratch and sniff. Scratch and sniff. Scratch and sniff. I didn't know I was agreeing to that. (laughs) I thought those days were over. I really enjoy working in small theatres. I don't like the huge, spectacular shows. You know, I quite like to see the audience. The whites of their eyes. Uh, Yeah, yeah, not quite. (laughs) Not quite. I'm glad I'm not Emily Dickinson. What a miserable life led she. She didn't have Cadbury's dairy milk and nobody came for tea. My father said, dentistry would be a very useful uh, career for you. You can use it any country in the world and as a Jew you might be thrown out any time. Still it remains in me that that possibility. I think all good actors are trying to shine a light on what it means to be human. Mm. You know, and to look at human behaviour and, and to look at contradiction. And this is what and David Bowie saw. This. Is this true? David Bowie saw this and then uh, wanted you to make a documentary about him. Yes, he asked me if I'd like to meet up and would I, he liked what he saw. And I mean, thought, what a compliment. Yeah, it, it kind of was. Maybe Fantastic. it was a rash judgment to make. <laughs> and this woman came up to me, she said, Now tell me, have you made any movies? And I said, well, no, I haven't been to Betty Ford yet. Well, if I could have gone through that floor. (laughs) And somebody came pounding across the beach at me. I thought, oh, no, not here, not now. Leave me running towards me, running towards me. And I... And they ran straight past me. (laughs) (laughs) By hook or by crook, I ended up meeting them in their hotel. The words breaking in are so vulgar. For a 16-year-old Beatlemaniac <laughs> to spend eight days with John and Yoko, I still don't believe it. And then I was with Douglas mm. uh, Adams. I will always remember Douglas's immortal words. She can't sing, she can't dance, she can't act. What's the good of her? <laughs> and for some reason I was insulted. And then the door opened and I went, Blimey, you're Shelley Winters. And she said, and who are you? And I said, I'm Derry Foles. And she put her tongue right down my throat. (laughs) I never saw her again the rest of the evening. Are you enjoying now far more than you were enjoying the height of your success? No. Because at the height of my success, I was on private jets and limousines and I wouldn't be stuck in a pub with the likes of you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's charming, that is. And Britt Eklund turned and gave me a smile such as you have never seen. And I got this wonderful, utter, total attention 
until she realised there was absolutely no use to her whatsoever and it was all turned off as though the light was... Oh, no! It did make me laugh. And also, by the Scotsman, uh, apparently you are tender, frightened and convincing. I mean, it's working for me. (laughs) (laughs) I've made Sandy Walsh blush, but in in a good way. It was for me, being in the supermarket in Accrington and my elderly lady's coming up to me and saying, when are you and Marie getting married? And me saying, well, we're not allowed to because Hayley's transgender and... And them going, never mind that, they should be together. And that's the way to change the world. I'd say about yeah. this film is it's perfect to take someone on a date to because you don't have to at, talk to them. Yeah. Did you stuff. do the old yawn, arms around the back, <laughs> creeping down the front? It was very I'm, tempting. I'm doing a bit. <laughs> sliding the bra out of the top, yeah. <laughs> it's an art to that. I interviewed on the same day Idi Amin and Harold Pinto. Difficult for me to say who was most difficult and intimidating of the two of them. I mean, were you in the same room as these people? I was in the same room as Harold Pinter. I oh. wasn't necessarily... But I, I collected them. That's probably the best choice together as a, Yeah, Harold always was, but we became good friends over the years, mm. and I didn't continue my relationship with Idi Amin, I can tell you that. <laughs> and I had a terrible problem because my Hamlet kept treading on my very pointy-toe shoes, you see, so I had to keep trying to leave the stage. But, of course, I couldn't because he was on the foot. And it was written as this sort of very camp... Thing. I actually knew a couple of people that auditioned for it and they said, oh, it's this very sort of camp actory type. Mm. I thought, well, I could do that. But it said, Len is tall. And uh, Mark Gator sent me an email and said, will you give me a ring? And I thought, he's not doing that to tell me I've got it. Uh, he's just being nice because he is the nicest man in the world. And he said, look, we've, we loved what you did, but... And I said, you've gone for somebody tall, haven't you? And he went, yeah. <laughs> I could never get an agent for years because of my disability, so I had to bring my own, which was good for me, actually, because it taught me a lot of discipline. And so negotiating for the right fee, hopefully. Okay. <laughs> yeah, not as good on that one. More about getting the role. Now, what makes this film interesting is that it's actually really the story about two men, because J. Edgar Hoover, for Sorry, all of the... <laughs> <laughs> Look, Nick, there's not much man-on-man action in this uh, movie. But yeah, what it is, okay, oh, is a sort of story Just about... Just very intense here, right? <laughs> go on, go on. It's a story about... Uh... <laughs> We have done this readers for a couple of months. Uh, so, anyway, go on. Okay. Yes, it's better be good. <laughs> so basically, Jay Gahoover, famously, was he gay? And I just think actually that if you don't have older actors and older actresses, you're not really getting a view of a balanced society. How much can you tell us about Mary Poppins and uh, can you succumb to tickling or bribery? Um, neither, because otherwise <laughs> I'll just get a huge smack bottom from Disney. Um, uh, uh, I can only tell you that it's going to be great. <laughs> and there are amazing people in it. And if you, if you know. know who's in Meryl it, Street, Meryl Streep, Streep and uh, Emily and Colin Firth. Mm. And, Meryl and, Streep's a bit overrated, I think. <laughs> oh, apparently. Sad! Exclamation mark. And then there was a guy who was supposed to shout something from the wings and he didn't come on. And I, very oh. quick thinking, because I've got a very deep voice, I rushed off to do this old character who actually was still in the toilet. <laughs> and I went off and I went, and the line was, Give me some light. And then I ran back on as Ophelia. <laughs> I've made up for it. I, yeah. I've spent many, many years since making amazing commercials, teaching people how to make sure that they don't get infected with STIs. Oh, right, that's so lovely. I'm, I'm, I'm the voice of chlamydia. So the review came in the next day. The first Ophelia to start out mad and go slowly say. My simple mantra is, 
Never accept the world as it is. Dream of what the world could be, and then help make it happen. No, I love it. Carol Decker on Scratch and Sniff with a goodie bag. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed it tremendously, and uh, thank you for for picking up on so many things that I'd I'd actually forgotten about. Did Katie get all this? Oh yes, she got all this. Yeah. No, wonderful. I tell you, Nick, it's been a total pleasure. I should get highly drunk. Thank you very much. What an enjoyable interview.